If you would, bow your heads with me and let's pray and go before our great God. Father, once again, we come to you right now because we need you. Though we do this week in and week out, I pray that you would never let us settle into a routine where we just coast. But each time that we come and gather and sing these songs to you and read and hear from your word, I pray that you would remind us that we need that, Father. We need it so much that you had to die for us, Lord, just to get the message, Father. But you raised and we rejoice in, in, in the fact, Father, that you didn't um, just die, but you rose to show us, Father, that our God is pleased with us now. Those of us that have put our trust in you, not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done, Father. So I pray that we would be reminded of the great power that we have access to in the face of the most impossible circumstances here in life. Father, remind us that we have access to the same spirit that rose you from the dead. And I pray that it would impact the way that we live. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. I'm glad to be here with all of y'all today. Uh, I'm John. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. So if it's your first time with us uh, again, we're grateful that you came and uh, decided to spend your Sunday with us. Be sure to grab a card on your way out and fill out your information. That's just our way of being able to stay in touch uh, with you. We want to build with you more than um, in the time that we have here. Um, So as we start, I want to start off with a question, and it may be a, a tough question, but I want you to, as best as you can, try to engage and really try to think in your head, try to answer this question. And the question that I had is this. When did you first learn about marriage? It's kind of an odd question, right? Because for most of us, it's just kind of been a thing that's been there, right? As long as we've been alive, as long as we've known what life entails, we've been familiar with this concept of marriage. What's the first married couple that you met? Who is that? Be it was your mom or your dad, neighbors or friends. Think about it as best as you can. Who was the first married couple that you were exposed to? I would argue that the first picture that we had either shaped or it shaped our view of marriage. Right. So so those of us that have good thoughts of it, they probably come because early on in life, as we saw marriage, it was a good thing. It was something to be longed for. Something to be had. But if you didn't have as good of a picture, my guess is that as you think of marriage, it's not something that you long for, but something that you lament. Something that you maybe try to run from. What was it that made you want to get married? Or what was it that made you not want to get married? Think as best as you can, what was it? So I say all of that to say, regardless of if you want to get married or you don't want to get married, 
one thing that I know about all of us is as we think of this concept of marriage, marriage just kind of seems like this backdrop to, to life. Marriage is probably the most natural relationship that exists in the world. And when I say natural, I don't mean the most prevalent in the day and age that we live in. I mean, it's just the one that just seems to be there for the history of the world. Marriage has kind of served as this foundation or pillar through which the whole world has been built. Not only is it natural, but one thing that you and I both know is that it seems like it's very influential. Marriage is a powerful influencer, and I'd say it's probably one of the most powerful influences that has shaped you or I today, the concept of marriage and family. Statistics go through and show about all the uh, positive uh, effects that that it has on kids and society as a whole. But you and I know from personal experience, right, the, the good things that come from it. But you and I know as well just how much the bad things that come from it can really mess with us, right? When was the first time that you saw a marriage crumble right before your eyes? For me, it didn't take place until I was in college. So for most of my life, I grew up. Um, I grew up in the church, and surprisingly, in the church that I was in, I didn't see a whole lot of marriages fall apart. So I kind of lived with, with this mindset of, if you're a Christian, then you're safe. But then I get to college, and what takes place was there was this one guy for two years that poured into my life a great deal. And he got married. After my freshman or sophomore year, and he asked me and Richard to be in the wedding, and we went, and we were there. And it was just a great picture of God's grace. It was good to see them celebrate and rejoice and seem like they were at peace. And that was in June. And then October of that same year, I'm sitting with a friend of mine and his wife in the same room as she's on the couch in tears because she came home to a note from him that said, I'm done. I'm going to California. And at that point, it messed me up. My whole life, as I thought of marriage, all that I could think of was it's a good thing. I can't wait until this takes place. But then once I saw that, it messed me up. And I thought that if there is a possibility that I could cause this type of pain or that I could feel this type of pain, then I don't want any part of it. And it changed me and it changed the way that I viewed marriage and relationships. The question is. What was it that took place for you? Has it been something? Maybe for you it didn't take place until you got married and you learned marriage is not as exciting as I thought that it was before I got into it. Right? Being a pastor for these past eight years, one thing that I've seen is I've seen folks date and get married. And then I've seen their marriage. 
and what takes place. Everybody on the pathway to getting married, they are filled with excitement and euphoric feelings of what the future is going to be like. And it's going to be great. And we're not going to go through the same things that they went through. And there's all of this optimism. But then they get married. They come back from the honeymoon. And it seems like all too quickly, right, they kind of find themselves in a place where, where did all of that stuff that I had go? For those of y'all that are married, how long did it take you? Think back. How long did it take you to lose the initial excitement or flair that you had when you first got married? Though marriage is natural, it's powerful and influential, it's so easy to slip into neutral and to neglect the amazing power that we have in this thing called marriage. What takes place in marriage, what will take place for everybody in this room that is married, is you're going to find yourself in a crisis. Something's going to take place. It may be infertility. It may be the death of a loved one. It's going to be something. And what you're going to notice is that your spouse changes. What you're going to see in them is that you don't think of them the same way that you used to. And then what takes place is as soon as your thoughts of them start to change, the way that you treat them starts to change. Husbands can get to a point where they feel like the only reason I do what I do is because my wife dot, dot, dot. Or wives can start to feel like the reason why I constantly stay on him and nudge him is because he's failed to do this. I made these vows to this one person, but now I got married and it turns out this is not the same person that I made these vows to. Invariably, what takes place is we all come to the place, or if you desire to be married, you will come to the place where you ask yourself the question, is it worth it? There may be some in this room right now, and as you sit here, you feel like you're in a place where you've gone from, is it worth it, to it isn't worth it. And you just feel hopeless, like all your strength has been zapped and there's nothing that makes you want to move forward. As we look at God's word today, as he talks about this concept of marriage, more than just helpful advice, although we are going to get that here in the word, I think that what we're going to see here is this compelling vision for marriage that changes the way that you and I live our life here in the present. And it's not just for those for folks that are married, it's for folks that aren't mar- mar- married as well. So a disclaimer on the front end, sometimes when we talk about marriage, it's easy for those who are in the room that aren't married to think, this week's not for me, 
I can tune out and I'm just going to catch back up next week when, when, when they come back to stuff that's more pertinent to my life. But one thing that I want us all to see is that all of God's word is useful and beneficial. The funny thing is, as you go through the Bible, what takes place is the one person that writes more about marriage than anybody else in the Bible is somebody that was not married. And I think that he does this for a few reasons. One, Psalms 119, if it's going to say in that psalm, because I study your word, God, your word makes me wiser than all of my teachers. There's something that's better than experience, and it's God's word. But two, sometimes being an outsider gives you the freedom to speak into something that insiders would excuse that they would say, yeah, well, you just don't get it. Paul is an outsider when he sees things that need to be spoken into. What takes place is he doesn't get um, confused or deceived by thoughts of sympathy, although he is sympathetic, but he's stern. He says, well, This is what God says is true of all Christians. If you're a Christian, the same spirit that rose Jesus Christ from the dead lives in you. So a guy like Paul would say, well, I know it's hard and I don't know what you're going through. But if it's easier than being raised from the dead, then regardless of how hard it is, I think that you have the power to do what God has called you to do. Get to work. If you're single in here. This is my my charge. Don't be an outsider. God's placed you as a part of this church. God has provided you relationships with people that are married and you have the freedom to speak into it. Your perspective is needed. If you don't do all of what you are called to do, then the marriages that comprise this church will never be all of what they're called to be. You are not a spectator. You are a participant who has the same spirit of God inside you. Be bold and be stern, but be gracious in how bold and how stern you are. Uh, Ephesians 5, verse 21. Start with me and it says this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own Husbands, as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present to and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does for the church. For we are members of the body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, 
but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. When we deal with conflict in marriage, it's easy for us to think, right, that the problem is with our spouse and not us. Now, we would say, well, I know that we both have problems, but deep inside, there's a thing in us that feels like their problems might be worse than ours. And that's why when we sit and we listen to a sermon on marriage, we spend more time trying to ensure that our spouse is paying attention than we do trying to engage with God's word. That we feel that it's unfair if the preacher is preaching on marriage and we're here and our spouse is not here because now I've got to go and tell him all the stuff that he said about them. Inside, we kind of feel like that the problem is with them. That you and I feel like if I could just get my spouse to change, then I would think about them in a new light. And then if I thought about them in a new light, then it would change the way that I treated them. But as Paul talks about these instructions of marriage, the one thing that he gives us or he tells us is this, that the way that you treat your spouse has nothing to do with the way that you think of your spouse, but the way that you treat your spouse shows what you really think of Jesus. And so what Paul does is he starts off this time, this instruction of marriage, the very first thing that Paul does, the very first thing that any biblical author does when they talk about marriage, although the husband is called to lead, they start with the wife every single time. Do you know why? Because if a wife will not submit, and I'm going to get to what that word means for those of y'all that thought that I cussed when when I said that word three times. If a wife will not submit, then it's impossible for a gracious husband to lead. Do you know the only way to lead somebody, to get them to do what it is that you need them to do, even if it's for their benefit. If they won't submit, then the only way to to lead somebody that won't submit is to lead them by force. And that's the one thing that God says is out of the question in marriage. Well, it's one of the things. There are a lot of things. But God won't make provision for a man to lead by force. Therefore, what he says is all the times it starts with wives submit. And submission is not a bad word. It's not something that's meant to take away from the wives' womanhood. It's something that's meant to add to it. It's this concept of willful submission. Look here at this verse, verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves right here to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Paul's not, Paul is not a chauvinist saying men are always in charge of women. That is not true. That's not what the Bible teaches, a generic authority that men have. The Bible places both men and women as equals. 
And so as Paul says here, as Paul asks these wives to submit, he says, no, 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 submit to your own husband. Paul is concerned with the family. But as you do to the Lord. Listen, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, also wives should submit to their husband in everything. Yo, did you hear what it said about Christ? That the church submits to Christ not be because he's a slave driver, not because he's a dictator, but the church as a whole submits to Christ because he is a deliverer. He is a savior. We submit to Christ because of the good things that he's done for us. The church submits to Christ because at the end of the day, the way that the Bible tells it, you and I were all headed to hell. You and I offended God with all of our sin. You and I were in needed. You and I were in need of somebody to save us. You and I had no hope in the world. And so what Christ does of his own accord is he comes and he dies for us and he saves us. Not because he needed anything from us. Jesus' salvation was free of charge. And it was entirely for our benefit that you and I could experience the reason why we were made being drawn into a relationship with Christ. Jesus saves us out of the independent rule that you and I had that ruined our life. Do you remember where you were before you met Jesus? On this side of things, can you reflect on how much saving you needed and how grateful you are that he saved you? And so what Paul says is, look, 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 in the same way that the church submits to Christ, this willing submission. This is what a wife is called to do. To submit to somebody that's not a dictator. But somebody that who has it their aim to be a deliverer, to help their wife along to cultivate. Submission is not a bad thing. It's a very good thing that's meant to lead us to a better future than we could get to by ourselves. So this concept of willing submission, it was something that I uh, learned about all through middle school, high school, college. And what took place was I have two little sisters who used to love to braid hair. And so they would do the uh, micro braids, you know, them small joints. It took like eight hours. And so what I saw for years was women that came into our house. They sat on the floor for eight hours in the same place, endured excruciating pain left with their eyebrows just raised because the braids are so tight. Listen, but listen, everything that my sisters told them to do, they did it without a hitch. Turn your head this way. Turn your head that way. Put your head down. Don't get up. Right? All of these things, they did it. Now, why? 
Did they do it because it was painless? No. Did they do it because it was easy? No. But they willingly submitted to somebody because they knew, man, at the end of the day, they're working for my good, not theirs. This is the picture that's painted in marriage. This is what helps us uh, to grasp what Paul means or his goal by asking or by telling wives that this is God's plan, that they would submit to their husbands as unto the Lord. And you may say this, submission is hard because I don't know if you know this, right? But I didn't marry Jesus. You're true. This is true. So what that means is that your husband is not perfect. What this means is regardless of your best efforts to change him, he will never be perfect. And that excuse is why I cannot submit to somebody because they're imperfect. That would work or that would be an excuse that worked if this reason didn't hold true as well, too. It's not that your struggle is that you have to submit to somebody that's imperfect. The struggle is this. Submission for anybody doesn't come easy. And and the uh, reason why I say that is this. Jesus is perfect. Jesus clearly commands us to do things in his word. Jesus is crystal clear when, when, it, when, it, when it comes to how it is that you and I should live. And who in here can raise their hand and say, I've been perfectly submissive to all that Jesus has called me to do? None of us can. Submission in and of itself is not easy. And so this is why Paul's not going to let the excuse go. The reason why it's hard for me to submit is because I'm married to somebody that's imperfect. When God created this concept of marriage and when God orchestrated things in such a way where he would call one to submit to the other, he did that and he called you to do that knowing full well that it was going to be hard. It will be painful. But just because it's hard and it's painful, it doesn't mean that it's not beneficial. It's your good that's in mind. God has not called you to submit to an ogre, but to a lover. And this is why it's so important that those of us in this room that aren't married take pains to make sure that you choose the right person. This is why it's so important, and we talk about this time and again, to make sure that when you get married, for those of us that are Christian, that we want to get married to somebody who looks at this verse, who looks at this passage, and sees that this authority, what's being said here, applies to me too. Because at the end of the day, what takes place here is the submission and the respect, it doesn't come as a result of the way that you think about your spouse, regardless of, of, of who they are. It's an expression 
of the way that you view your Lord and Savior. And you open yourself up to so many things that are tough and overwhelming if you don't choose the right person. And by the right person, I don't mean somebody that's perfect because there are none. But I mean somebody who knows what it's who knows himself what it is to submit to to God. To somebody who knows what it is to submit himself to Christ and to his word. Finding a husband that submits to Jesus is a safeguard because at the end of the day, what takes place is that you have a church that looks out for your best interest. There's a community of folks that can help your husband to interpret and determine what God's will is. That if you're concerned that, man, I can't see myself submitting to somebody who may get it wrong, then you may at least want to put him into a community of folks that at least have some weight or, or, or some, um, some clout with him that can help him determine God's will for, for, for your life. God's called you as women to submit. And listen, if you think little of that word, if we think little of that word, then what takes place is that at the end of the day, it's that we think little of Jesus. You are no more Christ-like than when you obey God in this way. And that you go to Ephesians 1, and what takes place is there's this. There's the Godhead. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All of them are equal. But what takes place is you have God the Son willingly submitting to the Father. Submitting does not make you less than. Whenever the Bible makes a distinction in between God and God or man and man, it never has to do with value. It always has to do with function. This is our role. Marriage is comprised of both parties giving up themselves. So the wife gives herself up to her husband to be led by her towards love. And the husband gives himself up for his wife to lead her towards this love. Verse 25. Before we get there, I mean, one thing that I do want to address, very practical, right? Um, you may sit here and feel like God has called me to submit But John, all right, I'm going to do that. I'm going to pray. I'm going to do all of this stuff. How do I tell my husband when he's a failure? How do I tell him when he gets it wrong, right? I don't want to just kind of sit on my thumbs and pray. If I feel like my husband is not leading me in the way that he should, how do I, in the most respectful way, tell him where to go? And I... This is what I feel like is the best way to do this. And I've seen my wife do this plenty of of times. She knows how sensitive that, that I can be at times. And so what takes place is my wife does a great job at times of praising what she wants to see more of. 
So instead of critiquing, John, you're being a terrible leader right now, what she'll say is things like, hey, John, do you know those times where you sit us down and you encourage us to pray as a family? Those are the times that really feed my soul. John, I remember when we were in D.C. and you went and you put this chart together so that we could read through the Bible and just the way that you kind of day in and day out cared for me and checked in on me. Those things were really helpful for me. And she'll just gently with much grace throw those things in. When do you think that we can start those things? Can you help me as I read through those? And all of those things as a man, they they don't drain me, but they kind of Make me feel good. And I'm like, yeah, that was good those times that I prayed. That was good that time that I led you. Do you know what, Chandra? I've got an idea. Why don't we? And my wife feels led and loved and cared for. And then I can go on and do the things that God has called us to do as husbands. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their own body, just as Christ does the church. As God gives the instruction to men, though God gives it to the wives first, with the men, it's the longest. And at the end of the day, as we think about this concept of Headship and leading. It's funny how when you go through this verse, as God gives this role to the man, he doesn't use the word lead one time. But do you know the word that he does use time and time again? Love. Husbands. Love. It's a command. It's not a description. It's an act of the will. It's a verb. It's something that men are actively called to do. Any authority that God has provided to a man in the marriage is only given so that he can fulfill his obligation and duty to love his wife. God only gives him the resources that he needs to 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 lead her towards this end. Marriage is not about a destination. It's not about trying to take somebody somewhere, but it's about reflecting this relationship. That the, the way that we treat our spouse shows what we think of Jesus. And that's clear because in both cases, there's an analogy or a picture drawn from our role to something that Christ and his church does. Look here at verse 20, 20, 20, 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church right here and gave himself up for her. 
It's not just love in a generic sense, but it's this sacrificial love. It's giving up of my entire self as a man in order to make my wife all that God has called her to be. The end of my leading is not self-interest. And this is why God gives a vision. Because if you give anybody authority and they don't know why they have it, a sinful heart is always going to use that power to serve themselves. So what God does is he does not divorce the authority that man has from a vision, but he gives him this vision that he's to love his wife, and he uses the picture of Christ in the church to show him the lengths that he needs to go to make sure that this takes place. This is what Christ did for us. Jesus Christ, listen, he gave himself for us, past tense. He gave his very life to make us holy, right? So what he does with the church, this is this cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her future to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Jesus uses his entire life here on earth all the way up until his death for somebody other than himself. He uses his entire life to make his bride, the church, holy and blameless. He works tirelessly to ensure that at the end of it all, nobody could accuse him of using all of his power to serve himself. And this is the model that God provides as the baseline for husbands, which means this. If your wife is feeling as if she's being drugged along in pursuit of your ambition and glory and fame, then you may be doing a whole lot of things, but you're not doing this. What they call somebody that's a vine keeper, right, who kind of keeps vine or takes care of things outside, they call them a husband. Do you know what his role is? His role is to wake up every morning with thoughts of what are the imperfections that need to be removed and what are the things that need to be built on in order to see this vineyard become all that it can be. It's somebody that wakes up and this is not an afterthought. This is the dominating perspective of his life. This is why I exist right now, is to take care of this vine. This is what Jesus did for us. He lived his entire life to take care of us. In order that we would be made like him. Through his word. And this is the task that God gives to husbands. Husbands, your job is not to make your wife more like you. Your job is to make your wife more like Jesus. Your wife is no better off if she's more like you. Regardless of how much you may think that that's the case. Because at the end of the day, we've talked through this. There's already imperfection inside of you. Your wife is better off the more that she's like Jesus. And the task that God 
has provided for you to do, he tells you this is going to cost you your entire life. It's a lifelong task that requires everything inside of us. And the aim is not just peace, but the aim is spiritual improvement. And the question is, men, what is your vision for your family? Part of the reason why this is so hard to hear and part of the reason why we see in many churches, the reason why it becomes so hard for the wife to submit is because oftentimes the wife has a more fully developed vision for the family than the man does. And so what takes place is this task or this weight that she has on herself to bring it, what she sees is it becomes incredibly frustrating in a marriage because positionally God didn't provide the woman with the resources to fulfill that. God gives that authority to lead to the man. So the question is, men, what's your vision? It's not something that you have to come up with yourself. The Christ's bride is cleansed through his word. There's so many times that I talk to guys and when we talk through this, the big thing is, well, I'm not a reader. It's hard for me to engage. But I've seen guys who don't know how to do something in their house, research and Google and YouTube all day. I've seen guys read ESPN for hours. Because at the end of the day, those are the things that are important. Those are the things that grip us. This is what God has called us to do. Our wives don't stand in the way of our joy. Our wives are the pathway towards our joy. Our wives are the very pathway towards us experiencing God's will for our lives. Just as a small word of application, women, this is the type of man that you want. You want somebody who's spending their lives, not building up things for themselves, but serving. And the church provides an amazing context where you can see that. One thing that I want you to know is if you don't see it, it's not because it's hidden. It's because it's not there. And I love the way that he calls us to reflect on our relationship to Christ. Because what that means is that if you're not married and that's where you're trying to head, the best way to prepare for marriage is to be a faithful Christian. The best way to prepare for marriage is to sacrificially give of yourself to meet somebody else's needs instead of using people as pawns to do what it is that you want to do. If you do that outside of marriage, then you're going to do the same thing with your wife. Look here as we kind of close to the end as he gives us this vision to help us out, not to beat us down, but Paul gives us this this vision to motivate us. Verse 28. 
In this same way, listen, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, that sounds kind of self-serving, but what he's trying to do right here is he's trying to show, right, that in marriage there's this vision of oneness that's meant to motivate us to serve God and he, or to serve our wives. Verse 29, it says this. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and they care for their body as Christ does the church. For we are members of this body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother to be united to his wife and the two will be, be become one flesh. Paul is painting this picture of oneness to remind men that what, as we're married, Our spouse, under no obligation, at no time, is ever our opponent. She's never an obstacle. She's one. So much so that he brings in the passage from Genesis, where Eve is made out of Adam, to remind us that it's not as if, all right, I've got to treat my wife. Well, I've got to treat my wife as myself, so if I really want to be joyful then I've got to serve her. So that's not what he's trying to get across. What he's trying to say is there is a reality that you two are one. And what he's saying is, I just want you to know how logical it is for somebody not to take care of themselves. He's saying, we all take care of ourselves. We all eat. We all feed ourselves. We all go to great lengths to care for ourselves. It's the reason why when you meet somebody that's on a diet, you look at them and you say, man, all you're eating are leaves? Why do you hate yourself, right? Because you look and say, you're not caring for yourself in the way that you should. There's meats, there's breads, there's... There's all of these good things. Paul's point is, listen, man, we do that. And part of being married is that our role and our task is to do that for our wives in in the same way that we do for ourselves. And he says, this is what Christ has done for the, the church. And this is the beauty of what you and I get a chance to rest in is that the Bible affirms that for those of us that have trusted in Christ, we are one with him. Listen to what that means, though. For it to say that we're one with him, it means this, that one day when we stand in front of God, because I'm one with Christ, there is absolutely no guilt that I have as I stand in front of him. Because Christ has gone so far as to make me one with him. There's no shame that I have. All of what I've done in my past has been covered. Christ has made me one. There's a security that I have in Christ. Is that if if I'm really one with him, then what that means is his destiny is mine. What that means is that the only reason why I ever have to fear not Spending an eternity with God is if somehow between now and then Jesus Christ messes up. 
If I have no fear of him ever messing up and I'm one with him, then there's a security that I have in him. There's a reason why I want to latch on and stay close to him because I know all the benefits I experience and receive. I have it because somebody who didn't have to made me one and spent their life to ensure their destiny is my own. And this is the vision that God calls men to do in marriage with their wife. Take care of them. Ensure that they know that they're one. Ensure that they feel the same level of comfort and security. And then Paul ends and just says this. Verse 32, the most bizarre thing, is he gives the most extensive picture of marriage that are, as he gives the most extensive instruction on marriage that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. At the end, Paul ends with this in verse 32. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. In this book, whenever you see the word mystery, it refers to the gospel of Christ. And this one verse right here gives us something that nobody else has. And it's this. There is a vision. There is a goal for marriage that exists past marriage. Everybody else gets married and marriage is the end goal. Right. Um, I was on a plane a few weeks ago and I talked with this girl who had been a, a part of our last church for years, came to the conclusion that she was not a Christian and says, I don't want any part of it. And so as we sit on this plane on the flight to Chicago, um, um, I ask her, right. All right. Why? What took place? What, if anything, makes you reconsider the position that you have. And I thought that she would say things like, well, fear of death. But what she said was relationships. So she so she works in psychology now. And what she says is this concept of love and the Christian expression of it. She's like, I've never seen it as everybody else talks about marriage Marriage in and of itself is the end. There's nothing past marriage. But she's like Christianity presents this vision that marriage is for something else. And she says, that's the one thing that I just can't get past. And as I look through cases of marriages and strife and all of this stuff, she had said, there's something unique about when Christians, when those that really believe what God says about marriage, there's something unique about when they go through things. And Paul's point at the end of this is that marriage is not an end. Marriage makes a terrible end in itself. Marriage is a means to an end. And that end is proclaiming or displaying the greatness of God to the rest of the world. Marriage is like a camera in its purpose. The purpose of a camera is to produce a picture the purpose of a picture is so that those who are nowhere close to what took place in that picture can experience the joy and the wonder and the benefit of what took on or, or of what took place at, at that time. Instagram, you scroll through it, right, and you smile and you laugh because though you're not there, 
you can share in all of the good things that took place. The better the camera, the better the picture. The better the picture, the easier it is for somebody who has no who has no experience with what went on to share in the goodness of what went on. And what Paul's saying is this is what marriage does. It gives people who have no experience of the unconditional love that Christ has. They get a picture. They get a glimpse. And it draws them in. It's a picture of those who have no concept of what forgiveness is and how far that it goes. Marriage gives people a commitment that is not meant to be broken primarily so that they are forced to forgive somebody else in the same way that Jesus Christ had forgave them. And as they do that, what takes place is people that are used to being treated based on the way that they perform can look inside of that marriage and see there's something that you have that I don't have. What is that? And that's where we step back and say, it's Jesus. I don't treat my spouse based on the way that I think of them. I treat my spouse based on the way that I think of Jesus. And Jesus has performed perfectly, which means that there's no reason for me to treat my spouse in a way that he hasn't called me to. And if that's your vision, if that's your end, if that's your goal, it takes care of 10,000 smaller problems. Because at the end of the day, you're reminded happiness makes a terrible end goal because it changes quickly with one phone call. It's zapped. But if displaying the greatness of God to the world through the relationship I have as the end goal, then those 10,000 smaller problems are just logs that are thrown on this fire to make the warmth of Christ grow, grow warmer and warmer. We've been so encouraged, not by seeing the successes in, in marriage, but by hearing about the deep failures and how low things have gone and how Christ has brought, brought folks who have been at their wits end and he's provided them with stories of his greatness. This is what marriage was meant for. This is what it does. And although marriage is the most natural of relationships, the things that we see in God's word is that it takes the most unnatural form of love and commitment. How do we get there? A few months ago, my uh, one thing that my wife and I tried that I would like to propose to y'all is just this one phrase. And the one phrase is this. Pray today. Whenever you find yourself, you and your spouse, in a space called today, pray. Reorient yourselves towards God. What I found, and it may just be some semantics, is this. We tried praying every day, 
And what took place was we did it for a few days, but then we missed one. And then we missed two and we looked back and it's like, ah, man, I missed one or two and now I feel bad. And so it's harder to kind of pick back up. But when your concept is as long as it's called today and I pray that even if you miss a day, that the day that you find yourself in is today. And so we we wake up each morning. We kneel by the side of our bed. And I look over at Sean. I say, Sean, how can I pray for you? And she tells me, she asks me the same thing. And as we pray, it just serves as a great reminder that our marriage is not just to be lived for us. That the best, the way that I can love my wife best is not trying to lift my thoughts of her, but it's trying to lift my thoughts of Jesus. And if I can do that with her and she can do that with me, it just puts us at a place where we realize that marriage is meant for much more than just our personal happiness and enjoyment. So my challenge, my one task that I want you to try, even as we we leave here, is pray today. Be reminded of the fact that we don't have the strength that it takes to give up ourselves to someone or give ourselves for someone. It's it it lies contrary to everything that we feel on the inside. But we do serve a, a God that has done it himself and has died for us to forgive us of the times that we have not done it and has provided us with his spirit so that we can do those same things. Let's pray. Father God, um, once again, we just ask for your help and your grace in this. Remind us that marriage in and of itself has a use that's far greater than just staying together or being happy, Father. I pray that you would remind us the purpose of marriage is that we would be holy and that we would take our cues from you and be reminded of the fact that holiness was never meant to be hidden. It was meant to be displayed. And so I pray that we would be compelled by this great vision for marriage. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.